Okay, so this morning we will start on the fourth servant song, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13. All right, so we got started last week. And it, in your notes, just to review that, this is known as a fourth servant song. The previous chapter ended by showing that their Redeemer is coming. We have the watchman watching. And he sees the messenger coming. He sees the Lord coming. And what we're going to see today is this is not exactly the kind of Lord, the kind of Savior that they were expecting. So they most likely were very excited in any notes. However, they were horrified when they see him. This is a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. The Redeemer they saw coming in chapter 52. This teaches the substitutionary atonement. Christ dying in our place. <clears throat> and um, we outlined this passage. We, I gave you the five sections of it. It starts out his, the sufferings, the servant's success, then his suffering and his significance. And then it goes back to his suffering and success again, kind of inverted, but the center part being chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. That is actually the heart of the, of the prophecy. And then the last thing we talked about is the people of Israel were very likely asking God how God in his holiness could still do to them, could still do good to them if they were as bad as he said they were. And of course, this question applies to all God's people at all times. How can God ever be good to us considering our, our, our sin? All right, now I told you this teaches a substitutionary atonement and it teaches that Jesus satisfied divine justice. Those are the two big things. Let's look at a couple of verses before we get started here um, to give a quick view of this. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And today we're going to start over here with Samuel and just go right straight down the road. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And you can read it whenever you get to it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus had no sin. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us. And because he became sin for us, and we have the righteousness of God. So that definitely teaches a substitutionary atonement. All right, and next we will have read for us Romans 8, 1 through 4, and then Romans 3, 23 through 25. <clears throat> uh, so when you get to Romans 8, 1 through 4, Audrey, you would read that for us. Yeah. 
is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. All right, we were totally unable to do anything for ourselves. Christ did that for us. Now, it's important to realize that Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law before he went to the cross. We had to have the covenant of works fulfilled in him because we couldn't do that. And then he had to pay for our sin because we failed to do that. So without his life of obedience, this work on the cross would have been meaningless. All right, and finally, let's look at Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Okay. So this teaches us that God set forth Jesus as a propitiation um, to satisfy his wrath. Uh, the sins, no sin was had been propitiated or atoned for until Christ did that on the cross. Now in the old covenant, we had a, this sacrifices, five different sacrifices that uh, to show forth the work of Christ, but the blood of goats and bulls or any other animal cannot propitiate for sin. All it would do, all they would do, would teach the people of Israel that the true substitutionary atonement was coming, but the sins were not propitiated or atoned for until Jesus actually died on the cross to do that. Um, on the Day of Atonement, I don't know if they ever did the Day of Atonement or not, but it was set up to cleanse the children of Israel up until Jesus Christ could do the, the true cleansing. His, God's wrath was just pushed forward a year at a time until all that wrath fell upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And we will be reading from that. Now the cross is the, a very central point in history. And John Stott has a book out, this, I think it came out in the early 70s, called The Cross of Christ. And I want to read a few quotations in here from other people, not John Stott himself, on how important the cross is. <clears throat> this is what a, a converted Muslim says about the cross. If the cross of Christ is anything to the mind, it is surely everything the most profound reality and the sublimest, sublimest mystery. One comes to realize that literally all the wealth and glory of the gospel centers here. The cross is the pivot as well as the center of New Testament thought. It is the exclusive mark of the Christian faith, the symbol of Christianity. So a converted Muslim makes that statement, which I thought was very interesting. 
and then a man, an English Congregationalist, in a book called The Cruciality of the Cross, P.T. Forsyth, says Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what the cross is. You do not understand Christ till you understand the cross. And then Bruner makes this statement. The cross is a sign of the Christian faith, of the Christian church, of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The whole struggle of the Reformation for the soul of the day, for the soul of the gloria, was simply the struggle for the right interpretation of the cross. He who understands the cross aright, this is the opinion of the reformers, understands the Bible. He understands Jesus Christ. And then an Anglican scholar named Bishop Stephen Neal makes this statement. If the Christian theology of history, in the Christian theology of history, the death of Christ is a central point of history. Here all the roads of the past converge. Hence all the roads of the future diverges. So here's what we have from some prominent people saying about the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, which is what we'll be studying here in this servant song. Any comments so far? Just trying to set up the importance of what we're getting ready to look at. All right, now back to uh, the first one, the servant's success in 52, 13 through 15. You want to turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah 52. Okay, in your notes here. The servant Jesus Christ, this, this is a servant Jesus. It's not the servant of Israel. Sometimes in Isaiah, when we read the servant, it refers to the nation of Israel. But that was the unsuccessful, the sinful servant. This is the righteous servant, Jesus Christ. He will act wisely. It says at the beginning, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. That's according to the translation of the English Standard Translators. New King James says he will deal prudently. So it's what... What they're saying is he knows the Father's will. Jesus knows exactly what to do, according to verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So when he comes into the world, he knows exactly what he needs to do. And the New American Standard Bible translators translated as he will prosper which would indicate that he will accomplish his mission. Now, the either translation would be okay, but it's what this teaches if you're reading the original Hebrew. You know that he knows what to do, and he will be successful. He gets that right up front. Isaiah gets that right up front in this. He knows exactly what to do. There's no accident involved, and he is going to be successful. And we've had a lot of teachings against these two things. Like, you know, it was just an accident. Here's poor old bowed and beaten Jesus. And, oh, it's just awful what they did to him. 
How many times have you heard that in your life? If you've never heard it, you're blessed. But anyway, that's the wrong teaching. Isaiah says right up front, he knows what to do and he will be successful. But we also see that he will suffer greatly and be humiliated, but afterward he will be high and lifted up. This exaltation at the right hand of God will follow his humility. His humiliation. He has humiliation first, and then he is exalted to the right hand of God. <clears throat> so this portion of this servant song shows he will have be humiliated even to the point of death, and then he will be exalted. It says he will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But verse 14 shows us humiliation. <clears throat> as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Have y'all, any of y'all seen the passion of the King of Kings or Jesus of Nazareth or one of those? And they show Jesus hanging down the cross. Let, let this warn people. Don't try to reenact what happened to Christ. You couldn't even recognize him as a human being according to this verse. <clears throat> now, this sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Just a, he, he didn't even look like a human being. He had been beaten up so badly. This represents the wrath of man, what they did to him. Um, the um, Romans and the high priest beat him up. Both of them beat him up, if you read through the Gospels. And he was scourged. And who knows what all else he was done, was done to him that's not even recorded in the Scriptures. And then they nailed him to the cross. And he was on that cross for six hours before he laid his life down. <clears throat> R.C. Sproul makes this great statement. He says, this represents the wrath of man. This is the wrath of man, what they did to him here. Now, in chapter 53, we see the wrath of God poured out on him. And John Stott, in this book, makes the argument that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was pleading to the Father to, if possible, may this cup be removed from me. He didn't even have this verse in mind. We've had martyrs, human martyrs, that gladly give their life up for the cause of Christ. Why would Christ pray for this to be removed from him when mere martyrs would not? So when he was praying in Gethsemane that the cup be removed from him, it was not the wrath of man that he was worried about. He was concerned about the wrath of God being poured out on the cross, at the cross on him. So this represents just the wrath of man, which is nothing compared to the wrath of God. The thought came to mind of David taking the judgment of God 
choosing the judgment of God rather than man's judgment because he knew it would be fair. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so for the humiliation, then we see in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not seen, not heard rather, they understand. All right, so we see that after his humiliation and exaltation, in your notes, this will eventually result in a worldwide dominion. Worldwide dominion. This verse prophesies that the church will succeed in carrying out the Great Commission. <clears throat> now, what was sprinkled in the Old Testament when we read of the in Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus? Who was sprinkled? Who? The nations. In in Exodus and Leviticus. Oh. Um, that would that would be the um, the altar was sprinkled with blood. Okay. And did they sprinkle the priest? They consecrated them. Yeah. Yeah. Did they? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Did they sprinkle the people? Were the people ever sprinkled with blood? Yes. Yeah. Individuals were sprinkled in the Old Testament. They weren't immersed. Only wicked people are immersed. They were sprinkled. Okay. And but we see now Isaiah prophesies that nations are going to be sprinkled. What does that tell you? First of all, there'll be no nations once Christ comes again. So if nations are going to be sprinkled, that tells you something, right? It's before Christ comes again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it's going to be worldwide dominion. The nations are going to be consecrated to God. Sprinkling consecrates. So this is another one of those passages that I think clearly teaches post-millennialism. The church will be successful in carrying out the Great Commission. And in your notes, the blood of the true high priest will sprinkle clean many nations just as the shadowy old covenant priest would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on people to make them clean. The old covenant people were sprinkled with blood, but the new covenant and the new covenant nations are sprinkled. I'm going to read a passage here out of Ortland in his commentary on Isaiah. Pretty brief, but I think it's Raymond Ortland, O R T L U N D, Jr. Okay, it's, it's the preaching the word commentary. It's conservative and reformed. He says, this is something new. All the world's top experts never thought of removing our guilt this way, as talked about in this passage. 
that the servant of the Lord would judge our evil by bearing it himself in his own sufferings. Even we who know the gospel struggle to grasp it. But this was the joy set before him to cleanse the very ones dehumanizing him. One solitary man, abandoned, round into the dirt under our hill, giving to us, <clears throat> giving to us, where am I at? I don't have, okay. Life-transforming purity. It's the only way lepers like us are healed. Before him we are left in speechless wonder. But here's the wisdom of God. The undeserved sufferings of Jesus Christ outperforming the best of the world's sweet, oblivious antidotes. And the mission of the church is not to offer... This is why I wanted to read this. The mission of the church is not to offer the world a Christianized version of their own false salvations, but to communicate a good news they've never seen or heard of before. If people do not sense that the gospel is saying something unheard of, in the usual remedies for human misery, are we speaking clearly? We don't speak as the world speaks, in other words. The world has its remedies. The remedy that the church offers is nothing like that. It should be totally different. Okay, anything else on that first stanza? I believe that's the end of that. Yeah, the first stanza of... <clears throat> the fourth servant song. Well, yeah. It's interesting some of the variations of uh, the words here because where it says uh, he sprinkled, he, he shall sprinkle the, the note in the DSV says or startle. <clears throat> we translated startle and I checked a couple of other translations and some of them have it. I think in the, uh, the Greek Septuagint it says he, uh, he, he will astonish them. So it's interesting. I, I have no idea there, what's going on with that. There seems to be a, a lot of difference between spark, sprinkling and astonishing and startling. Yeah. The uh, that that is interesting. Um, I chose sprinkle because it fit in with my argument. <laughs> <laughs> Good a reason as any. <laughs> I assume, in other words, I just assumed that sprinkle was the right translation. I think it fits the it fits the context better. Well, and if you, if you read on, shall shut their mouths at him for that which had not been told them. So startling also fits in the sense that they are going to just be surprised at, at truth. Yeah, that could fit into really. Yeah. And it's just like what Ortman was saying. They should be startled because our remedy is so much different. Or God's remedy is so much different from that of the world's. I have a question. In any of your research, did it come up? It's just kind of curious why whoever decided the chapters should be where they are. <laughs> why Why didn't they end up chapter 52 and verse 12 and start 53? It seems like you know, it's all together. I mean... I don't know. I said, did you run into that at all? No, I no no nobody I read addressed that. But I, I'm like you. That's it's kind of weird that they did that. And the Geneva Bible doesn't have a verse 15. It's included in 14. 
that kind of Bible has no verses, no verse numbers. Yeah. And no chapter numbers. Sometimes the uh, chapters serve us right, and sometimes they don't serve us so well. The breaks are definitely not divinely inspired. So what was the um, the Jewish, was it the Day of Atonement that the goat was sprinkled and driven out? They laid their hands on the goat and drove him. But he wasn't sprinkled sprinkled. with anything. No. All right. There was no sprinkling done until the sacrifice was killed. Oh, okay. And then they would take the sacrifice of the killed animal, put it on the altar. But no, he wasn't sprinkled. He was just. They did lay their sins on him by laying on him. That was symbolic of that. Yeah, symbolic of the. There's two different views of that about the scapegoat. One is that it was a symbolic for ownership, that they owned up to their sins, and the other was it was a transfer of sin to them. You know, the scapegoat wasn't a sacrifice, He, he wasn't killed. All right, anything else? Okay. Next section there. And uh, Henry, you have to read that for us. First three verses in chapter 53. Who has believed the report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and did not esteem him. Okay. <clears throat> okay, now in your notes there. The sufferance, su- the servants' sufferings. Verse one shows the people's sinful reaction to God's plan. Who has believed our report? They rejected number one, the gospel, and number two, they rejected the Messiah. Anything God had to offer them good, they rejected. Okay. Um, Owen, if you could look up for us, John chapter one. Don't don't look that up. Uh, I, I, we're all going to turn to that in just a minute. Never mind. Um, okay, this section teaches us that there was nothing to attract them to him. He was a root out of dry ground. We're told, and I've got four reasons listed here. Uh, He was born not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem in humble surroundings. Now, Bethlehem and Jerusalem are both in Judea. But Bethlehem is a fairly insignificant city, and of course Jerusalem is where the temple was. That would be like a person being born in, I don't know, Maybe Tacoa, Georgia instead of Atlanta. Pumpkin Town. Pumpkin Town instead of Greenville, yeah. 
right. And uh, now his father was a poor. Look at let's look at his pedigree. His father was a poor carpenter, and his mother was a suspected adulteress. They, the uh, religious leaders, uh, many times accused of Jesus of being born of fornication. All right, number three. He was from the despised town of Nazareth. Turn to John chapter 1. I just want to show you how despised Nazareth was. Nazareth was. And you never can pick this up in the English because they don't translate it right. The words are translated right, but they're in the wrong order. All right, verse 45 of chapter 1. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Now the literal word order is the son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth. Now the ESV turns those around and I think every other translation does too. So literally it says the prophets who wrote the son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now the way the Greek is constructed there, this was such a terrible, terrible thing Nathanael had to interrupt him. Which the word order in our English doesn't show that. It says, we found him. Son of, the son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth. Hey, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He wouldn't even let him finish the sentence. That's how despised Nazareth was. So they didn't like him because of that. And also in Isaiah 53, he had at best, at best a normal appearance. All right, now, Owen. John chapter 1, you should already be on that page, verses 10 and 11, and Dana, Mark 9, verses 12. And I'll, I'll tell you when to read. It is not surprising then that the spiritually depraved people of Israel despised and rejected him. All right, John 1, 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. All right. Even though Jesus was their creator, and they were his people, he came to him, and they did not know him. They did not receive him. And then Mark, I mean, um, Mark 9, 12. And he said to them, Elijah does, does come first and restore all things, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Treated with contempt. Here come, here's their Lord and Savior, and he is treated with contempt. All right, now, is, let's uh, look at Luke 4.14. Uh, let's not look there yet. Um, it's time to go. Anybody have anything to add to what we've uh, 
talked about this morning before we close in prayer. Okay, I'll ask our pastor this morning to close us in prayer. That's right. Lord, we thank you for this time of study and